As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and ever in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Cook, current founder and CEO at Shiny Shoe. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Mark. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you, Paul? Uh, fantastic. It's crazy times out there, but uh, living it up at home. Yeah, exactly. I'm in my garage right now. Normally, I do not work from my garage. I work from an office. Uh, I am in my garage because of COVID-19, of course, and everybody on our development team um, is working from home, and me as well. And the reason why I'm not in my house is I live in a small house. I've got young kids. They're always going crazy at all times, Background basically. Noise. Yeah, exactly. I don't have an office. There's not enough space to have like a private office for me. So, um, yeah, they would already be like, Daddy, who are you talking to? If they were in the same room. So that's yeah. why I'm in my garage. That's why I don't have a face cam as we're talking here. I'm, I'm just on voice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is on the audio uh, anyway, so that's all right. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild time right now. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've been kicked out of my study space at the moment because my wife's got a meeting for with her teachers from her school and she said, Paul, get mm. out, quote unquote, I need to do real work. Okay, thanks. So this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from all around the industry. They share their experiences, their stories, and basically everything that kind of culminates in where you currently are. Now, Mark, before we get to your career itself, um, and the things you've accomplished so far. I wanted to rewind a little bit to the, the days before you actually got into the career and some of your first gaming experiences. Do you remember what your first game is or what some mm. of your first gaming experiences were at all? Yeah, so uh, I was you know, lucky to grow up with parents who were willing to buy me gaming consoles when I was a kid, I guess. Anybody who has that privilege, um, yeah. I think, should recognize that. So, yeah, I think... I first had a Sega Master System, um, which was, I think, unusual in the U.S. That like wasn't super popular here. Um, and I first and foremost. Yeah, exactly. Like I can't, I can't remember why. Like I, I was too young to know why that was the first one that that we had access to. Um, I think it might have been one of my cousins had it, and then my parents got it for me um, yep. as a gift for Christmas or something like that, and. Um, it was great, and I remember playing it. Uh, however, like quickly, all my friends started to get the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, yep. uh, and I was feeling left out. So I remember we specifically we sold the Sega Master System. Like this is in the days before Craigslist or anything else, right? This is yep. like mid '80s. So I I have no idea how my parents found somebody to sell that to. Maybe it was in a newspaper, like a newspaper ad or something. But we sold that Sega Master System which was a great lesson for a kid growing up. They like, we use that money to buy a NES. Um, you oh, know, plus I'm sure. And all the trading value. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Plus I'm sure my, my parents kicked in some more money too. Um, and uh, yeah, then I, I was off to the races, so to speak with uh, the Nintendo and then the Super Nintendo and PlayStation and so on from, from there. So no, like looking back a lot of, a lot, I did a lot of gaming. Like, I mean, my dad was like constantly worried, like, your mind's going to rot. I've heard Square that so many times from him. 
Were there you know, any particularly just... favourite uh, franchises or even genres along the way that you really latched onto? Yeah, absolutely. Um, from like the Nintendo era, era, excuse me. Uh, I mean, I just love like, I mean, platformers was like the primary genre that was out there, right? I mean, there was just so many good ones that were just so oh, sure. damn hard. Uh, like Mega Man 2 is a classic, right? Yeah. Um, or some of the Castlevania games. And I have one of those NES classic minis now. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I tried... Yeah, I, I tried playing some of those, and I was just like, "God damn, these games are hard! Like, How it's just ridiculous." Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I remembered loving many of those uh, styles of games, um, and then as I grew older, um, you know, some of my favorite games of all time are Doom Two and Street Fighter Two. Um, it's a lot of two two games that I I love. I, I realized when I was writing down like my favorite games like why i guess like the sequels are always better than the original they can fix all the problems yeah um but uh yeah th so that's a few years later but um yeah those are some of my i guess favorite gaming experiences from my youth and uh, that's a fantastic story. so i can yeah i consider myself a lifelong gamer was there a game that you identified all because of like for your career has obviously been all around games. Was there a game at all that you identified as being this, I don't know, really formative moment? We've gone, oh, like I, you know, I want to get into, I want to get into games. I want to make them or somehow immerse yourself in them in some sort of professional capacity. Yeah, it was probably uh, the Doom and Doom Two. I think um, yeah, okay. there was like a combinations of, of things that was happening around then. So I was probably like. 11 12 years old around that time yeah. period um and id software was a pioneer in releasing modding tools for their games right so like yes. there was map editors and things like that that you could just muck with um and so like my friends and i were playing those games a lot uh at what we used to call land parties you know yeah, if you're yeah, younger maybe you've never heard of that no, i do know the sort <laughs> but yeah there might be some of our listeners that aren't familiar Right, uh, where we would bring all of our desktop towers, and of course back then they were like 10 times heavier than they are now, to each other's houses, including CRT monitors that weighed 80 pounds or whatever, um, and connect them on IPX networks. Probably almost nobody listening knows what that is, but this yeah, is like a, a pre-Ethernet type of network where you had these little T connectors you had to connect in a sequence, and if you didn't like quote unquote, terminate them properly on like, you know, it's a line. This is like connecting a bunch of computers in a line and yep. the far left side and the far right side had to be terminated properly or the network wouldn't work basically. Um, and this was like with physical knobs you had to screw into the thing. Uh, anyway, Lord, like, yeah. so we were doing that all the time and like the ability to make your own map, you know, and like we were young idiots basically, like we didn't know how to make a well-balanced map, but just, it was ours, right? Like we made our own map and then we played it multiplayer with our friends. That was a very powerful kind of like compelling thing to be able to do. So, um, you know, a lot of appreciation towards the id software team for making that possible for, for kids growing up in that era. Yeah, they're quite fantastic what they did back in the day. And I mean, their, their current track record's not too bad either, but um, you, leading on from there, you eventually did find your way into the industry in a few different capacities. So you had some internships early on. Um, I did. Through LucasArts, you had a little stint there at IGN and Digital yep. Eclipse. Um, but some, one of the things I noted specifically when it came to LucasArts, because it connects in some way with some of your more recent works, is that you were working does. on uh, Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2, but specifically, uh, Grim Fandango was one that came up along the way. Yep. So 
Uh, I think I was incredibly lucky to have been somebody who was interested in working in the game industry uh, from a young age. And especially at that time uh, in the kind of global game dev industries, like there was a lot of it that was centralized in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, and there's still a lot here, but it's it's way more global now in comparison to what it was back then. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunities uh, there were like doors open to me just from having grown up here, which is just pure dumb luck, right? You know, oh, there's sure. just nothing, nothing to really um, say otherwise. Right time, right um, place. Exactly. Um, and so I ended up going to this like, you know, what we would call now a meetup. Uh, back then, I I don't remember what it was called, but. Um, I was I started to get really interested in game development. Uh, the thing that I I also feel lucky for was um, one of my good friends growing up. His dad was a programmer. He didn't work on games. He worked on business applications. But uh, he kind of like opened our eyes how we could write code to put images on the screen, basically. Even just like basic stuff. Like you could draw a circle and a line, and you could make a stick man kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, we could animate it to move around. And that kind of like started to open our idea or eyes to like, oh, we could make our own interactive experiences. Um, and they were very primitive and they were written in QBasic on DOS, but, uh, they, you know, they gave us that like power. They're like, oh, we can, we can do this ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's that control, I guess, that comes with it. Yeah. Right. And so that got me interested in game dev. Um, and then back then, you know, I, the internet existed, but not as we imagine it today. Um, so a lot of how you would get your, like, if you want to learn game dev, you would go to a bookstore and you'd buy a book. Right. Yes. Um, and there weren't a ton of authors out there at that time, but this, this part of the story seems insane to me now in 2020, but, um, I got some book that I'm sure my parents bought for me. So thanks to them as well. <laughs> um, that had like somebody, one of the author's phone numbers was listed. It was just like, hey, you know, like if you're interested in talking more about game dev, just you can call me. That's this is like a book published to bookstores. Yeah. And yeah. Incredibly, I mean, just... incredibly unlikely too. Like, I mean, you wouldn't expect to go. Firstly, I don't know that there's anyone out there going and getting books um, to learn how to how to code or do anything game related anymore when we've got this incredible you know, resource called the internet. But to then uh, to pick up a book and have the phone number there, basically an open line to get some help. That's that's fantastic. So I called it. Uh, like I, I remember feeling like super nervous and I was like, what's this person? I mean, what, what's going to happen? So, uh, but I respected, you know, what they had written and I was, uh, learning a lot from it. I think the other thing was I realized based on their area code, um, which, you know, I don't know if you call it the same way in, in Australia, but like, that's like identifies what area of the United States that the person's in. Right. Yeah, for the phone number, uh, which no one uses anymore, right? We all text each other. But yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> the area code was within the general San Francisco Bay Area. So I was like, oh, oh this person's local. So I called them. I I just introduced myself. I said, hey, I'm a kid. Like, I read your book. Like, I think it's interesting. Like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then they were like, oh, you should come to, this is where I'm going to get back to this meetup thing, uh, this event called Bay said, which was an acronym that was like Bay area computer entertainment developers. So this is like 1994, maybe yep. 1995. Um, and I was too young to drive. So I begged my mom, please drive me to this thing that was like at a pizza parlor kind of thing. Um, round table pizza. Um, and she drove me there and there was a bunch of like legit game industry people there. They were like, this is their kind of like meetup to talk about 
game dev. Um, and I met somebody that works at LucasArts and yeah, I kind of, uh, kind of went from there and they were super generous to have, uh, offered me an internship. Like I was 15 and I worked on Jedi Knight, Dark Forces 2 and Grim Fandango, which I both, th I think both of them are like 90 plus Metacritic games. So yeah, hell of a, a start to, to yeah. <laughs> uh, so I got super lucky. And again, I mean, that cycles back to that right time, right place thing. Sometimes these things just work out and uh, you lucked out to, to begin your career in such a way. Right. And, you know, as a newbie programmer back then working on those titles, you know, I don't, I don't think I contributed anything meaningful whatsoever, but they were gracious enough to put my name in the credits on both of them, which uh, does tie into uh, future things, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, we, we will absolutely get to. But then there was a following that internship, there was a stint there at IGN where you were doing some reviews and some cheat yep. codes and the like. How was that given that that is, uh, while still in the games industry, almost the polar opposite side of things in terms of now, <laughs> now you're covering games as opposed to creating, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was just like broadly interested in getting wide exposure. So, yeah. um, you know, that... It's, I haven't thought about that in so long. Imagine Media, now called IGN, but back then it was Imagine Media. They had Next Generation Magazine and uh, Ultra Game Players, which was the, the magazine that I worked on. Um, yeah, I, like I'm trying to even remember how I got connected to that, and I can't. So that's... Oh, that's worrying me. No, it's just worrying me. Like, I'm more <laughs> worried about it. You know, I know you're not. <laughs> I'm like, oh, sh get too old and forgetting stuff. Um, so I don't remember how I got connected to them, but... Uh, yeah, that was fascinating. Like, and it was funny being an intern at a place like that um, because I got shoveled all the like worst games to review uh, right. that like nobody else wanted to, you know? Yeah, I would do the same thing. If I was the boss of the intern, yeah, intern, uh, you review this game. The one I remember reviewing specifically that, you know, was just like painful was uh, Spice World, the Spice Girls PS1 game. Oh, right, okay. Um... The, I think probably the less said, the better, I'm, guess, uh, I'm guessing. I can't say that I had anything to do with it myself, but uh, probably the less said, the better. I spent a lot of time on my PS1, but Spice World was not one of those games that I ever happened to That doesn't to surprise me. Quite thankfully, I'm gathering. <laughs> but then um, you did so start to make your way back into the into the creation side of things from that point because you were working with, uh, sorry, another internship, but uh, with Digital Clips, you were doing some coding for the Game Boy Color. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, you researched your stuff very well. I'm almost curious how you even get this information, but uh, uh, that's absolutely resource. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely correct. So I, um, I worked with Digital Eclipse, which is a company that's still around and they're still yep. even in the same office building. Um, oh, they're now called that. Other Ocean. Yep. Yep. Uh, and they have, they're like a multinational conglomerate, actually. They've got like various different companies under that banner that do different things. Um, yeah, and that summer uh, I learned a lot about Game Boy Color assembly programming, basically for the Z80 CPU, which was super interesting. And there's a, a guy who was like kind of a mentor at that time. His name is Mike Micah. He still works with Other Oceans, like a brilliant guy. Um, and uh, yeah, it was su super interesting. We made a game called Booger Ball that summer. Uh, it did not ship to customers. <laughs> yeah, okay, I was going to say that's nope. a name that I definitely don't recall. <laughs> that was the intern project. Um, and the other thing I remember doing there was they were doing a, you know, like, I don't know if it was a port or like a remake or what it, what it was, but it was like um, Ghosts and Goblins on oh, the yeah. Game Boy Color, I think. And one of the jobs that I had was to capture all of the 
audio and digitize it in such a way that it can be used on the Game Boy Color. Uh, and the way that we did that was, this is like an ancient game that came out in the arcade, right? Like I was playing the MAME ROM in MAME and like trying to record samples of things cleanly from the PC, um, which just seems like an yeah, it seems like an insane way to do it. But after, I'm sure we'll get to this remastering other games. Like it doesn't surprise me. Like the, all the source media for all this stuff has been long lost because everybody back in the day was terrible at um, you know file management and like keeping track of these types of things. Um, so anyway, like the the one thing I feel prideful about though for that was. I think that's a game uh, that's well known as being extremely, extremely hard. Uh, over that summer internship, I became a god at yeah, Ghost and Goblins. <laughs> <laughs> so, so next on the list that I've got, um, and look, maybe maybe I didn't do my research thoroughly enough because I'm noticing a, about a four-year gap in the middle here. But next on the list that I've got is Plum Tree Software. Is it a software engineer? But was there anything yeah. was uh, there anything in the middle there, or did you drift away for uh, for a little while? Well, I, I mean, I went to university. I mean, that's oh, the that's main reason that uh, something changed. That, those previous internships were in high school. Um, yeah. So, or American high school. You guys call it that in Australia? Yeah, we, yeah, we high, school. high school, yeah. Okay. Um, I know how that can be different around the world. Yeah, but pr- Primary uh, and high school or primary and secondary, depending on the language you want to use. But Got yeah, it. That's cool. Well, simple, thank you for educating structure. me on that. Not a problem. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, no, there's at least one internship that's missing there. Then I, I, and this is a place that I worked at professionally as well. I worked at Nihilistic Software for two internships while I was at university. Um, one of which I worked on the game Vampire the Masquerade. Yep. Uh, the first one, not the one that most people remember, sadly. Uh, I think it was called Vas- Vampire the Masquerade Redemption. And then there's the FPS one that a lot of people will remember much more fondly. Yeah, because that's, that's the one that's getting the sequel at the moment. If I, if I that's the one that's it. getting the sequel at the moment, exactly. Okay, so that, that's, um, that's an interesting one there because I did have uh, Nihilistic listed um, and I, I guess I had different windows of time because I had things like uh, Marvel Nemesis listed and Conan. Was that yeah, yeah. you had a bit to do with those as well? Oh, that's working professionally. That was later. Oh, okay, but right. I've got okay, a bigger so bomb to drop on you then from your missing information. Uh, I worked on StarCraft Ghost at Nihilistic one summer. Okay, now that's that's a big one. We definitely need to pick through that as much as <laughs> as much as you're allowed to, I guess. Sure. Uh, t- tell me all about that StarCraft Ghost experience, because obviously that still gets dredged up from time to time by uh, fans of Blizzard. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, what was that like to so, work I mean, on? And then, I, then I guess when it ultimately didn't go ahead any further, what was that like to be a yeah. part of that? Okay, remember right now, uh, you're talking to maybe 19-year-old me or 20-year-old me intern. You know, yep. you're not talking to like CEO of game company person in terms of my perspective on this. No, so, um, yeah, like I was programming visual effects uh, at the time. And from my perspective, like my work was just super fun. Like I was trying to make like make parts of the game look cool. Um, and it was really a kind of compelling thing to work on high profile IP. Like I, I don't even think I realized at that point how high profile it really was like even as a hardcore gamer worked on a star wars title at that point that uh everything in comparison doesn't (laughs) seem quite as big already getting jaded maybe i I don't know (laughs) but um you know like my personal work was straight like it was interesting compelling challenging uh but it has like nothing to do with the big picture of what happened with that game yeah um and so uh in terms of like 
I mean, I, I'm speaking from like the far future looking back in terms of what happened and why, like I've heard stories from various people on all sides and I really don't feel like it's my place to comment on things. Yep. Um, it, it was really interesting to see just how it went from uh, Nihilistic to another company called Swinging Ape, took over yep. development at some point and then ultimately canceled uh, completely. And then the recent leaks, um, yeah, it's uh, you know, I, I think that's going and doesn't really end in a lot of ways. It's it's a fascinating exactly. one. Certainly, as someone on the outside, and must have been well, especially intriguing for you, even watching on as some of these things continue to break from time to time. But as someone who was a part of it for a period there, yeah, I think so. And um, I think the most fun conspiracy theory has been like some of us, like old timer insiders, being like, "Who leaked it?" It's been the most fun kind oh, of yeah, thing okay. to try to figure out. Um, I mean, I don't know, like it's probably most likely some old dev kit got sold at auction oh, when sure. a company went out of business and then somebody got it and they didn't know what it was. And then they resold it to somebody else. And then that person realized what it actually was and uh, then it ended up on the Internet. Yeah. A familiar sort of story. We see these sort of things with uh, that uh, Nintendo PlayStation. You know, that was a similar sort of scenario there that you basically described. Right. So... Um, there was, so that was in a uh, sorry a, an internship capacity there. Then there was Plumtree. Uh, what did you glean from from that period there? Yeah, was that's you know something capacity? I don't commonly. I'm sorry if it's loud. Um, I've got my garage door open. There's a helicopter apparently. Oh, uh, that's something I don't often get asked on uh, game industry oriented interviews. So uh, thank you for being like the first person to ask about an unusual part of my own career trajectory. You're welcome. Um, so what happened there is like, I'll call it young naivete, I guess. Um, yep. I was at university and I was like getting towards the time of graduating and 100% of my friends, including friends that had been like deeply invested in the game industry and wanted to be a game developer and so on, all decided to abandon that perhaps oh, at their like right. parents advice or whatever it was. Right. Um, and I think I reacted to peer pressure. Basically, I was like all my friends, like literally everybody I know who's interested in the same field as I am, which was, you know, software engineering programming, everybody's going into corporate software. So I was like, I should try it too. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, so I did. it's not an unusual sort of thing to follow some of your friends and, you know, you could get, I guess, cold feet. Would that be maybe one way of describing kind of what you f were feeling at the time? I think so. Or feeling like, I mean, I was blessed to, yeah, like I feel like I was blessed to have like been able to do all these game internships before I even graduated from university. So yeah. um, I was like, well, maybe I should check it out kind of thing. And like every, all my friends are doing it. Maybe I should try it see what it's like. Um, and I mean, like nothing whatsoever bad to say about that company. It was a really interesting time. I mean, it's like, the dot-com boom had ended. This was like post the wild times in San Francisco. I, w I was in the university in the time when like the ridiculous money was just flowing and the stupid money was flowing everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so this is like post crash. So any company that was still around in San Francisco in the internet business, so to speak, post crash was like, they actually had a viable business. So Palm Tree had a viable business, but um, it was a straight up corporate software play, like selling software to big companies to manage their information. I, I won't say anything more. There's That's no real reason. 
yeah, no real reason to go deeper than that. Um, but uh, I think I learned things uh, software engineering wise. I met one of my best friends even today um, when I worked there. So yeah, I have nothing to say like no, negative can't, about can't it. Really it was just speak ill about it at all. At all. Uh, but just after eight months or so, I was like, I should have been making games. What am I doing? So I decided to leave. Uh, and I contacted my old friends at Nihilistic uh, and then went from there. So then, as, as I mentioned before, you, you worked on the likes of uh, Marvel Nemesis and Conan. What was that like to be a part of? Yeah, that was, uh, it was, I think, it was a great learning experience. Let me put it that way first. Like, I mean, I learned a ton very fast. Uh, Nihilistic had a lot of really smart people working there. Um, and I learned a lot from them. Um, it was interesting working on licensed IP. So we had yeah, the sure. Marvel superheroes on one of the games and Conan the Barbarian on the other. However, not the Conan uh, that everybody imagines. And when they think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, it was specifically the books. And the, still the books are cool the for some of the, the more modern takes on that in, in the gaming space, I think it's still based on the books as well. Am I correct? I think. Yep. I think so. Um, from uh, Frank Frazetta, I believe was the, the, uh, the, the artist's name at least. Oh, um, right. Anyway, like I, those were interesting projects to work on. I learned a lot. I think like I really put my heart and soul into Conan, especially I was the lead gameplay programmer on that game. Um, I think the, the combat is one of the best things about that game. Um, but you know, I mean, it was, it was just interesting. Like there was, there's pros and cons with working with license IP. Uh, you may have heard, heard plenty about that on past interviews. Yeah. Past interviews Um, about various different IP. No, there's, there's always, there's always the good and the bad that comes with that because there's constraints that might be in place from the owner of that IP. Right. Um, yep. What was uh, it like, though, for you transitioning from your previous previous experience there, which was in an internship, to then yep. being a, a full-timer? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think I had to establish myself, so to speak, as somebody who was, um, you know, a worthy member of the team. Earning um, your stripes a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I came on as a junior person, basically. And uh, I think... Something that helped me, and this is like, I don't know, not everybody can control their kind of personality and attitude, but something I, I think did help me, just being honest, is like, I have a very optimistic and positive attitude generally, and that made it easy for me to collaborate well with a lot of different departments within the company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that experience, um, both... I liked it. I mean, I liked working with artists. I liked working with designers. I liked solving different types of problems as a programmer. Um, and that helped me raise my profile, so to speak, within the company because I was an optimistic problem solver. Like, a, you got a problem, I want to help you solve it kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, when I'm giving advice to... Positivity, that's for sure. Yeah, when I'm giving advice to younger people in their career, I definitely try to, try to focus on, like, that's a, a way to get noticed is, like try to solve things, try to help people, um, try to solve cross-departmental problems, which are uh, things that sometimes not don't get solved just because like nobody really communicates clearly enough about it, that sort now, of thing. Now, that sort of aspect, so kind of bridging 
bridging different groups and that sort of thing, I guess, was an important part of your your next insert after Nihilistic, before you then again returned to them, uh, where you were yeah. working with Suda51 and Grasshopper Manufacturer on Shadows of the Damned. Uh, because obviously yep. that was a, you had the Japanese team, but then you had EA involved on the other side as well. Mm-hmm. And it was, were you working in a similar sort of role, kind of bridging those two parties or groups, I guess? Was there a bit of yeah, that? Yeah. Uh- it's true. I mean, that was definitely part of my job. So um, I went to, I moved to Japan. I basically, like personally, I had been living in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, excuse me. Essentially, Sorry. since I was, you know, cognizant, you know, when I was a baby, I lived in different places. But since I was a child and actually knew where I was. Um, so it felt like my hometown. It's where I had been my entire life. My university was in the same area. Yep. Um, I really wanted to try something different. Um and I was super attracted to the creativity of a specific game called Killer7 yes. that came from uh, Grasshopper Manufacturer in Japan. And I was also somewhat frustrated um, and something I'm very appreciative of uh, the owners of Nihilistic was like exposure to the negotiate, like the business side of what they were doing, Yes, uh, especially like you know, at the end of Conan and everything, like, um, I felt the American game industry was so conservative. Like everything felt like almost it had to be tied to some license IP or something like yeah, just to, for risk management. Is. And yeah. And like, this is like pre the rise of the Indies too. So this is like this era where I felt like risk was like so tightly managed in a game like killer seven that like touched me like uh, as being so unique and creative just could not ever be made in the United States. I felt that at the time. Um, and and I, I mean, think... as, as a consumer of games at the time, looking from the outside, I you know, would have hundred percent agreed with you and things have changed a little bit in recent years, of course, but back, right. back in the day, I'm, I think you're pretty well on the money too. Your perspective back then was spot on. So that attracted me. I was like, okay, both personally, I want to try living somewhere else. And I'm also super uh, attracted to the like creativity associated with this. Like, how did this get made? How did this game get made? I wanted to know, like, uh, both just as a, you know, gamer who was just like super interested in it. And also the business side of the game industry, how the hell did a game like killer seven get funded and how did it get made? Um, and so I applied to work at grasshopper manufacturer in 2007, um, I got hired there, you know, with forces that were like unknown to me at the time that was like uh, causing them to hire more people from overseas. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I moved to Japan and uh, lived in Tokyo for two years working for them. And what was it like working alongside Suda and the team? Because different, very quite, different. Character, that's for sure. <laughs> yep. Um, so extremely different. I... Yeah, like ultimately it wasn't for me. Let's just yeah, okay. put it that way. Um, I think extreme cultural differences. And like I wasn't blind to, to kind of expecting that, but I don't think I knew how that would affect my own personal mentality about work um, yeah, okay. until I was in the thick of it, really. Um, but I mean, that's one of those but, things you, you don't know what you don't know at the time. It's a good way to put it. Um, so I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, 
there's so many really creative people working there. Uh, and it was a eye opening experience. I, I think my role ended up being something that loves just as you pointed out, um, was kind of less what I had hoped for. Uh, like I ended up being more of a kind of conduit between teams and so on, which like, I didn't hate, but you know, I was like more there to be like, let's collaborate all together on this game. And I wanted to be like more focused on the development um, of it. And, you know, I mean, there's like language barrier issues. They even had like a full-time translator working there at the time because there was a variety of like uh, people and my Japanese is decent, but it's not fluent. Yeah, okay. Um, so that was and, still beneficial uh, to you then. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, overall, it just ultimately like it didn't pan out, unfortunately. Um, and then I decided to come back to the US. Which uh, led to a return to Nihilistic and some work on Zombie Apocalypse, PlayStation Move Heroes. And I'm not sure, just because I, I did take note of the, the timeline there, does it mean you had anything to do at all with uh, Resistance Burning Skies that started to make its way, again, from Nihilistic as well, but it yep. did release after you left, I believe? Yeah, I did start working on Resistance Burning Skies, uh, and I left during the course of development on that game. So that is all correct. So they were, Nihilistic was working a lot with Sony at that time. Yep. Um, in addition to all those games, like we were also working on PlayStation Home. This oh, may yeah, okay. not be like no, well home. publicized, but yeah, <laughs> people remember that, uh, you know, PlayStation's Second Life type of thing. Um, and so we worked a bit on the official Ratchet and Clank kind of playstation home experience there um but yep that all those games are correct um and it was interesting to work directly with sony on first party things like that that had uh platform agendas yeah, that's something okay. that yep. uh, is always interesting you know when you're working with a first party and you're working on something that's like shipping near the launch of some hardware there's often like we want you to use these features of the hardware so you know like playstation move or uh, on the Vita as well, so yeah, interesting experience whatever overall the case for me. Was. Did that um, exactly? Obviously, yeah. They they bring about, I guess, so they open some opportunities because you're getting to experiment with some new ideas, new technology. But I assume they probably also bring their own set of constraints as well because you're kind of being encouraged, maybe even forced. I won't I won't put the words words in your mouth there, <laughs> but uh, encouraged to utilize those resources. I assume, yeah, they bring about some of their own constraints as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, just put yourself in the position of a big company. Like, you've got a marketing group who's, let's say you're talking about the Vita. Yep. The Vita had a feature called back touch. At least that's what I remember it being called. I don't remember what the official word was, but on the back of the device, you could way. touch it. Is Was that the official name? Certainly, that's how I referred to it. So I assume that was probably okay. some um, marketing speak that's made it, that made its way to me and I adopted. So I'm right. inclined to think you might be right. It's, <laughs> and so the marketing guys are like, all right, we've got back touch. We've got to make sure that the customer understands like why back touch is useful. Um, and the way that that trickles down into game devs, especially like if you're first party is you must use back touch for something that feels meaningful for your game. Yep. Uh, even if it seems at surface value to the game design team, like this doesn't make sense. Just find um, a way. So, find a way find a way to do it so there are those type of constraints um you know whenever you take someone else's money there's constraints that's the fundamental lesson i'll tell anybody that yeah. if you take someone else's money you're going to bring on some constraints uh to whatever it is that, that you're doing sense. <laughs> Not necessarily if you, don't, if you want no constraints sense. yeah don't take anyone's money 
just do it with your own money. Then yeah. you'll have, you just be holding to yourself. So from there, moving on from nihilistic, that's where shiny shoe comes in and, and more of our current day stuff and an opportunity as well as working on several other different IP and classic LucasArts titles. Yep. One of them was Grim Fandango remastered. So that that's would have been right. a thrill to come back to, I presume. Yeah, it was just a surprising opportunity, I guess I would say. Um, so I started Shiny Shoe in 2011. Yeah. Um, I left Nihilistic because we weren't making the games that I personally was interested in making at the time. Yep. And I wanted to try my hand as like director of the game, basically. Um, and so I started the company, uh, had one other person start it with me. So it was just two of us initially, and then a third person joined a bit after that. And we made a giant mech turn-based fighting game, battling game, uh, yeah. kind of Pokemon-esque called Offworld um, that uh, was launched on mobile. Like I, At that time, I was super interested in the rise of mobile devices as gaming devices. Oh, for sure. um, and we... We tried to release that as a free-to-play game. Well, we did, excuse me, we did release it as a free-to-play game. We didn't try to, um, but made like egregious design, I guess, failures with regards okay. to the monetization model of that. So um, that game ended up being profitable, but... Um, Not as much you as know, it could have been. Yeah, I just feel like it was just like we spent x and we got like x plus 10 percent, and that's just like eh, okay great you know it, like it doesn't it doesn't like unlock our ambition like we had ambition to do like a lot more than that so it was just like okay we could make the same kind of thing again um and uh that's just not what we wanted to do at that time amongst yeah. the three of us that were working there um and so yeah like i i think we were we were able to bring our um you know double a or triple a background whatever you want to call it like to we had like a really beautiful game at that time it got featured by apple it got featured by google on their app stores and everything but um ultimately it was flawed it was like it should have been a paid game and we tried to release it as free to play which was wrong um but i mean anyway. you, you wouldn't be the only one and you and shiny shoe like specifically you know won't be the only ones that was uh, kind of struggling to adapt and understand how that model and how the consumer base was responding to free-to-play or monetized games at that point that was a really tricky period i think for a lot of people as they're trying to discover yep. that so you certainly weren't alone yeah. say that yeah so yeah i think you're you're absolutely right on that it was like a definite huge paradigm shift within the industry for people targeting that market um and anyway then we like after that game we kind of had a uh immediate like question it was just like nine months i think we launched it in around nine or ten months it was like do we want to continue or do we not want to continue and we decided to continue but we needed money because we had like put our own savings into uh that that game uh came off world and um um, we decided to kind of pivot to a model where we tried to blend uh, working with partners or other companies on a consulting or work for hire basis um, and doing our original stuff. And so we started doing that. Uh, and uh, initially we were like flip flopping. We were like, okay, we're going to do some work for hire for a while. We're still going to pay ourselves like way under market rates, basically. To keep, so that we can save going. as much money as possible, right? And then we're going to go back. We're going to flip back to working on our original stuff, still paying ourselves way under market rates, but then we can completely focus on it. So we did that for a while. And then we decided, 
this doesn't make any sense. This is like dumb. Like we're still, you know, feeling so poor. And this is, uh, you know, I, some of us were married. It was just like, this is not working. Uh, this is just not going to work. So, um, we ultimately, this is, you know, this is over the course of years, decided to switch to a model where we were both working with partners on interesting projects. That was always key to me. Like whatever we worked on, we're going to work on a partner project. It has to be something that I, I would like, basically. That's like my criterion for like selecting projects it's not a, a lot one, of the like. time. Yeah, it's just like, would I personally like this? If the answer is yes, then we, we might do it. And so this is kind of like why our work history has this kind of like chaotic cadence to it. Yeah, you know, there's no like, you know, we only work on shooters or something like that. There's nothing like that. We've worked on like so many game genres on so many platforms. It's you just like my main... If you like the feel of it. Yeah, it's just like, is this cool? So, and so uh, we've worked on like a wide variety of things, uh, always or for the most part, simultaneously trying to build the next original thing um, up until we've gotten into all the next, you know, last 18 months where we're making Monster Train our biggest game ever, uh, which is, you know, 100% developed by Shiny Shoe and our, you know, contractors and partners that we've hired and worked with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's all been like, slowly building it's a slow burn it's not like the silicon valley sexy story you raise 10 million dollars from venture capitals and your venture capitalists in your series a and then you're just shooting off to the races you've got the hockey stick curve going up baby with your revenue right <laughs> none you, of that you feeling pretty good though about where things are starting to starting to go as as you mentioned before you're going from that point where you were underpaying yourselves and potentially even struggling to get by a little bit to you, you feel like yep. you're now Maybe not necessarily the hockey stick swing that you uh, that you just used, but you feel like you're on the upswing. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Like years ago, we like out of necessity, it was either like we're gonna have to shut down or we need to find a way to make this more sustainable. We yep. we shifted like um, how we structured the business and how much revenue comes from where and so on to the point where um, you know people are you know fairly paid basically, Good to hear. Uh, including myself. Right? Like I I I put in tens of thousands of dollars of my own personal savings into the business to get it going. So, um, and have still basically not recouped that, but we're still just building. It's like a, you know, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I kind of think there is some truth. Like I, I've heard some people say this, that like the, the, one of the biggest indicators about will your business succeed is how long you can stay alive. Um, oh, right. and not give up. Right. So, um, anyway, uh, all of this is built towards uh, Monster Train, which uh, is our by far our biggest original game. And I think it's honestly, I think it's the best game I've ever made. I say that with That's no, fantastic. like, I'm not lying. Like, I truly believe that. I've played it hundreds of hours personally for fun, uh, not just because I'm, like, on the team. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I'm really optimistic about uh, what's going to happen when it comes out uh, in the near term. I can't announce a specific no, no, that's, date. That's fine. Um, not a problem at yeah. all. Uh, and I'm, at the end of the day, obviously, yeah, Monster Train is this um, really, really cool project, actually. I, I did spend a bit of time messing around with, because uh, obviously there was some beta access recently. And yep. one of our other writers, Sarah, did a preview for the game on the site as well. Um, awesome. So we've been kind of immersing ourselves a little bit in it. And... For me, typically, it's not actually the sort of game that I usually go for, and yet I actually found myself having quite a lot of fun with it. Um, 
but I'd imagine bringing all those experiences, obviously all the stuff that we've discussed, and then some of the that uh, being able to work on Grim Fandango again, and uh, many of the other LucasArts titles there. You worked worked with Telltale for a little while. You worked with Stoic mm-hmm. on Banner Saga work. Um, yep. Like all these little experiences along the way, I'm, I'm assuming you're taking, drawing little bits from each of those and pulling them all in to make this ho- hopefully fantastic final product. Yeah, I mean, that's how it goes for everybody, I suppose. You are the sum of your experiences. Absolutely. So, I mean, we've taken all kinds of little nuggets of wisdom of what to do or what to not do across all kinds of spectrum of game development activity, like people management, technical decisions, art decisions, how to manage, I don't know, audio pipelines, like so many different things all come um, as a sum of all those experiences. And that has been super valuable uh, for us, for sure. And this is kind of like, yeah, the summation of a lot of those things is uh, apparent, I think, in Monster Train. Um, so I'm curious to ask you, though, like uh, you said, you don't normally play this type of like, Monster Train is a deck building roguelite. Yeah, so it's, it's the, you say it's you the don't normally play those. Why, why, why do you like it? It's, it's the card based stuff that usually puts me off. Um, okay. And I, you know, through a host of different, obviously, the other games that I've played over the journey. And they just, it was. I think it was the the I guess the RNG aspect to an extent, not not knowing what was coming. There was that lack of predictability that was always a bit of a put off for me for some reason. Um, mm. And I think, and maybe it's a fact that the game's also coming out at a good time. Like there's a few games that I've just by sheer coincidence fallen into lately that are falling back into. So maybe it's my tastes that are starting to change a little bit again. Mm. Um, but it's just the flow of the game, the the mechanic, like it all, it's all just coming together, and that roguelike aspect on top of it. I think it's it's just the right combination of these aspects that's meaning that the the card based component, which has usually been a put off for me, is not putting me off in any way, shape, or form. Okay, cool. um, I, I think Good it's, as you mentioned before, it's kind of the culmination of the experiences, and you're pulling on a few different sorts of uh, genre experiences here, and you're pulling them together in such a way that the the thing that I might look at and say, oh, that's the the quote unquote weakness isn't actually feeling like a weakness at all for me. And again, obviously some okay. people really love that and wouldn't even consider that, that aspect a weakness full stop. Um, sure. But something for me that would usually be a, a barrier to entry is not feeling like that at all. And I, I think that's fantastic. All right. Cool. Well, thank you for your feedback. Um, now, as we, uh, we're we starting to run a little low on time, we'll kind of cycle things back to to you and the career as we start to wind things down. Is there anyone out there in the industry that... Uh, really inspires you at all anyone that you really look up to in terms of the way that they run their business or in terms of some of the the, just the way they approach development hmm and it doesn't have to be of course and some people also sit no it's actually the people around me as opposed to someone external um but is there anyone out there at all it really inspires me yeah Uh, interesting i'm thinking i'm thinking that's not a problem at all it is one of those tricky ones, a question without notice too. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I like, I'm almost 40 now, so I've had some experiences where I, I almost want to say, never meet your heroes uh, in a way, which is like something that people have uh, said in a variety of ways about, you know, Hollywood celebrities and that sort of thing. Um, because people tend to put people on a pedestal in their mind and the reality is usually everybody's a human and they're they're more normal than you might think nobody's a god right um 
Yeah. And if there isn't anyone, I mean, that's that's also a very good reason why you wouldn't necessarily have someone that springs to mind either. There's got to be somebody. I'm just trying to. I'm just really trying to think. Um, Would it be someone that, given the given the history with the likes of Grim, Grim Fandango and whatnot, is someone like a, a Tim Schafer or a Ron Gilbert or someone like that that ilk, uh, someone that you kind of looked at over the journey? Perhaps not even currently, but maybe someone you looked at over the journey is sure. a really great role model. Well, I, I certainly uh, envy Tim Schafer deeply because he's so personable and so yeah. funny. Um, and, you know, I think a, a lot of people wish they had his charm, um, myself included. Do. And I've seen how important that can be um, in terms of like pitching games. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe that's the advice. Like if you're a young game designer and you're interested in getting in the industry, like learn comedy or something like that. Like Tim is so <laughs> funny and he's so approachable and so uh, personable that uh, I think that certainly helped him in his career. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that's a deep question for me, and I want to think about it a lot before giving you an answer. Not a problem um, at all. Uh, well, I bet there, there there are definitely people out there, but I'd have to think more. No, 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 no. That that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, obviously, the the game development scene has a very deep pool of incredibly talented people um, and incredibly experienced people. So to be able to identify just one can be a really tricky thing as well. And I kind of forced your yeah. hand a little bit by talking to Tim. <laughs> Um, so what about some of the more valuable lessons you've picked up along the way? Is there anything out there that um, you consider really, really valuable that you've you've learned via any of your experiences over the journey? Yes. Uh, it, you know, I kind of touched on this a little bit, like the, the value of both being good at what you do and being a good communicator and overall yeah. positive in terms of how you approach interactions with other people uh can add in a, a massive boost uh to your career trajectory i i honestly believe so um if anybody out there is, is listening to this and thinking um about entering the game industry soon you know you got to be good at what you do to get respect uh, but on top of that you have to be pleasant to work with and if you are able to like deeply understand the thought process and challenges that other departments and other types of people are facing, especially if you're working at a bigger company yeah. um, and help them solve their problems. Uh, the sky's the limit, so to speak. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot you can do. Regardless of look, whether you're looking to get into games or not, uh, just being a good person is not a, not a bad way to live your life anyway. Right, so. but yeah, I think like critically also it's the understanding of the other people's like issues and their problems and like, what their workflows yeah. and what matters to them. Um, now that's something that like, uh, when I first started at nihilistic professionally, uh, after Plumtree, um, I worked in the tools department and the tools department was like, we're making the game dev tools to help the rest of the creatives make the, the games. And, um, what I found was both satisfaction in that work because like if you improve some workflow, it was just like you're saving time off people's day every single day. Um, but it also created that kind of like empathy uh, for other people and how they worked with, I mean, how they worked on the games and so on that yeah. they were doing, um, which like being empathetic and helping to solve problems in those areas was like a, a career accelerant for me. So uh, I would definitely 
recommend not like trying to shut the door. Like, I mean, I've seen people that have succeeded in different ways. So, you know, advice in this world, nothing's absolute, but uh, it worked for me. And uh, if you've got the personality for it, I think it worked for you as well. Yeah, you're a long way down the road if that's the case. Um, in the event that you're having a rough day, what are some of those highlights that you, you're able to look back on? And, you know, if you're having a rough time, but you're at, it's those sort of things that can pick you back up again. Are there any particular experiences from your time in the games industry that you look back in, uh, incredibly fondly upon and um, that will stick with you? Yeah, well, um, I'll tell you something that, like, I guess I don't normally bring up with anybody, but since you've touched on it specifically, I'll, I'll mention it on this interview. Um, many, many, many years ago, uh, I think we're like in 2006 or so. Yep. Um, I had an anxiety attack okay. while driving over a bridge uh, in the San Francisco area and ended up like pulling over my car because I thought I was dying, calling an ambulance and uh, going to the hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, there was like a con I realized afterwards there was a confluence of factors in my personal life that kind of led to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a, a friend who was incredibly supportive at the time who uh, helped me immensely get through that experience. So shout out to my, my lifelong friend, Eddie Ng. Um, say thank you, Eddie, uh, for really helping me during that time. But yeah, I mean, I was immensely helped by having that person in my life. So, uh, you know, I know everybody's got great friends uh, out there, but, you know, treat your good friends well. You never know. You might know them your entire life. And, and we're still, off. he and I, he and I are still friends now. Uh, he's got kids. I've got kids. Uh, you know, we hang out as families together and everything. It's um, make sure you have support outside of work. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's a huge thing. Um, and whether that's simply family or yeah, friends or whatever. Yeah. I think, yeah really valuable. Fantastic. Uh, now, another one of those curly ones that's coming without notice at all. Um, but I hope we can have a little bit of fun with this one. Uh, if there's any game that's ever existed that you could retroactively add your name into the credits to, you'd be in some way responsible for. Now that could just be as simple as special thanks, if that's if that's all you if that's all you want. But sure. if there's any one game that's ever existed that you can just retroactively say I was a part of that in whatever capacity you might like, what would it be? Are you going to be mad if I told you that Doug told me you were going to ask that? Oh, okay, Doug. I know he's listening on the. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did have some time to prepare for this one, Paul. Um, <laughs> and I thought about it. And uh, hopefully I have an interesting answer for you. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, a lot of when I was thinking about that question, I was thinking back to um, games that had a big impact for me when I was, you know, growing up and just like not just from a kid period, but uh, yeah. all throughout the years I've worked in game dev and like Many, what I realized as I was thinking about that question is um, many of the games that um, occurred to me were things that were multiplayer in some way. And one of the main reasons why they were so impactful was just from the human kind of relationships of both friends in the real world and internet friends um, that were kind of like making it feel like it was something more than just uh, playing a game by yourself. So, um, here and I, I kind of I grouped them in yeah. a way that I, I commented on earlier that I think is kind of funny. There's a lot of twos in this list. Yeah, the sequels, um, Doom, and everything from before. Yeah, exactly. So here are four two games in a row that felt very impactful. Oh, good for me. Doom Two. Yep, is one of them. Um, not only was I making maps and playing with my friends at LAN parties and so on, 
Um, but I actually got really, really, really good at that game. And this is like pre-esports era. Uh, there was a service in the United States called Duango, which was a way to dial into essentially a BBS um, over your you know dial-up 24-4 modem yeah. um, that lets you play unlike dialing direct to your friend where you could play one-on-one, uh, you could play with up to four people over a modem, which was like revolutionary at the time. Um, and so that service, like I got really good at that game uh, and they had, uh, because of like the semantics of dial up, you didn't want to be doing long distance phone calls because yeah, they sure. charged a lot of money back then. Uh, there were servers all throughout the United States and different uh, municipalities and so on. And so uh, the one I dialed into was in the San Francisco server and um, like they decided to have a league and I like, I ended up flying to Seattle for this tournament that Microsoft like set up, uh, but I was too young. So they made my mom come. I mean, it was just crazy. So anyways, it has like a big kind of connection in my life for many reasons. All right. Another two game street fighter two yep. played it a ton in the arcades. Uh, I remember like being bullied by like a bigger kid because I was better than them. And like, right. you know, they just push you out of the way with their arm or whatever, like on the arcade stick to try to make you lose your quarter. Um, but uh, it was like just a, a really impactful and fun experience to, to have that kind of like socialization within the arcade. Um, yep. And now shooting more modern team fortress too. Oh, yeah, I mean, okay. not only do I love like kind of the, uh the aesthetic and just all the silliness of it and it i um this is something that i kind of miss in shooters like I, I mean i like PUBG and i like these new battle royales and everything that are out there now but um the old school kind of like server browser model where like there were admins of their own servers and they were trying to create a community that had like specific rules or purposes for existing um i used to play team fortress 2 uh, this is like about 10 years ago now like on servers where they were like specifically focused on competitive play. Yeah. Uh, they like, they, they wanted people to focus on like being good and winning. And, and I really got into that and got super competitive. And the thing that was cool about it was like, you would see the same people all the time, uh, which created, even though it was on the internet, like a community of people that know each other, even if we don't know each other in the real world. And uh, I really, awesome. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they've got a great, Aussie in that game, right? The sniper. Yeah, 100%. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, and uh, Dota 2, another Valve game, is nice. uh, probably one of my most played Steam games. Um, Similar just sort of like, reason. Yes. I mean, I think more real-world people I played with mostly uh, that I were friends just locally, um, but love the competitive elements of that. Um, so those are my like list of twos that I loved. Uh, another game that had a huge impact for me is EverQuest. And this is just like solely down to the fact that I played like a thousand to 2000, who knows how many hours I played of that game. Um, I feel like anybody who really gets that like MMO RPG bug, whatever the first one is that they play that they get into, like they just go fucking crazy on it. Yeah. It's, and I then mean, few, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you played any Paul? Um, not, not a huge amount, but I have obviously observed from the sidelines. Right. Well, that's probably for the best. Let's be honest, because <laughs> those games can suck up your life. Yes. Um, and then I feel like any any other one after that, like you might like it, but it's never really going to hit you the in same. the same way. So, so like I I played WoW and I, and I like WoW. I think WoW is a fantastically polished game and so on. Um, but 
EverQuest one, the original was like that game for me. And uh, I just went ham on that and like had friends in the real world playing it too. So it's like, again, coming back to like that kind of multiplayer element to it. And then here's my two uh, Japanese single player games that like had a big impact on me. I'm sorry if this answer's way too long, Paul. Um, <laughs> Killer seven yep. for obvious reasons. As we mentioned before. Yep, I moved to Japan over that one. And uh, the other one is Ico, aka Ico. Um, and the reason why I was impacted so much by that game was um, really just that it was a game that appealed to me as in my mindset back then. This is like, what, 2003, maybe? Um, I'm a hardcore gamer, uh, so it, it still appealed to me in that way, but it was still kind of like tender-hearted and uh, atmospheric and kind of contemplative in a way that uh, I hadn't played personally a game like that before that. So um, that's a wide variety of games. So then I thought, okay, can I pick one though? Uh... Yep. Sorry, sounds <laughs> Is that your son? Yeah. What's his name? Noah. Noah. Hi, him. Noah. Can you hear me? No, you can't hear me. You got headphones. So yeah, you got one game? Yeah. Uh, sorry, as a dad, I was just enjoying seeing Noah. Um, no, no, no problem at all. Yeah, I think probably to sum all those up, there's been a lot of like positive experiences I've had throughout gaming, but it's probably Doom Two. Like, open the most kind of like yeah, for sure. mental doors sense. for me that this is like this is a possible thing um, that I could make this work, that I could make this a career, uh, that I could design things that people find compelling. Um, so. No, that, I mean, it's a fantastic choice and one that I personally myself spend a lot of time with and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. So I totally understand why you'd select that one in your experiences. Now, cool. um, as we as we wrap things up here, uh, if people are looking to keep in touch with you or learn more about the game, where would they be best to go? Uh, to learn more about the Monster Train, uh, you should probably go to our Discord. It's, it's probably the best place right now, which is Discord dot gg forward slash monster train uh, we also have an official website at www.themonstertrain.com if you're interested in shiny shoes company history and want to see some of the wild things we've worked on in the past of which we didn't even like touch on some of them like we made a game using the american nba in the nhl yes. at madison square garden in new york so we've done some crazy stuff and then there's um, death door as well uh, which is that yep. streaming interactive title Yep. If you want to see more about that, uh, shinyshoe.com. Uh, we'll have, have that for you. Um, yeah, I think that kind of covers the main places where to find us right now uh, digitally. Um, and, yeah. Uh, any way that if people are looking to reach out to you specifically, is there anywhere they'd be best to go if they want to track you or learn a little bit more about you or interact with you in any way, shape or form? Well, I'm terrible at social media, so I think I have a Twitter account that I never post on called uh, Mark underscore Cook. I could not get Mark Cook. Probably some guy in England got it. You know, I've yeah, got an English-sounding name. Um, so you're welcome to tweet me on that, but I don't know if I'll see it. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say my email address. Like, if you're seriously interested in talking to me or want some advice, you can email me at mark at shinyshoe.com. That's probably the most reliable way to find me. Yeah, um, I mean, that's it's been our little bridge for, for this conversation in the first place. Um, and, I mean, I've really appreciated the time that you've been able to give me for this episode and sharing your story. And, um, 
I think if anyone's looking to reach out and has questions, then if you're anything like like what you have been for me in this particular scenario here, then I think they'll be able to get some really fa- fantastic, fascinating answers. So um, that's definitely one for listeners to pursue. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate talking to you. And I love that your your son has popped out and has joined the call. I mean, this happens to me all the time. This, I mean, yeah. it's also why I'm hiding in the garage, but uh, this is the situation now in 2020 with COVID-19, right? Yeah, and uh, the whole working from home thing. Um, well, Mark, thank you very, very much for coming on board for the show today and sharing your story and experiences, as I mentioned before. Um, I really do appreciate it very much. All right. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time. And that concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Mark's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.